So, welcome back. And welcome to all those joining us from wherever you may be. Again, this evening, we're going to reflect a little more about the way in which the passion narrative informs us of our own life condition and the, the forces and the cycles that we go through in the course of our lives, in the course of every day sometimes. And um, I'd also like, before we meditate this evening, to um, try to link this <coughs> again to the simple discipline, the simple practice of meditation. I think if uh, we were, I mean, all, all of the ideas really that we're sharing and discussing uh, had their value, I hope, but um, they're, they're very secondary in comparison to the teaching about meditation and to the practice of it. Um, the problem is, is that if you were to just give that teaching, which you can reduce really to three words, say the mantra, then you would have maybe, if you were lucky, one person every thousand years would put it into practice. But, so we need, and that's maybe a little over-simplistic, but we, we need, of course, to be able to understand to some degree what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. But it's also important not to get carried away with the theology or with the psychology or with, with the intellectual even aspect of it or even the, the most moving scriptures uh, without, without keeping the centrality of the practice. And if we can make this connection between the actual simple practice of meditation and this great body of wisdom that we have access to and that we can learn from and we can share with each other as we're doing, then we have the recipe not only for our own lives to change and be enhanced and to move forward, but we really have a formula for breaking some of the worst patterns that the human condition is trapped in. Patterns such as the cycle of violence and uh, abuse and injustice. These are habits, these are cycles that we keep on repeating in different ways uh, down the ages. So I think to be a person of faith doesn't mean that you have necessarily all the right orthodox beliefs. We've, we've, we've um, made a big mistake over the centuries in Christianity by identifying faith with belief and punishing those who expressed different beliefs. Um, that doesn't mean to say that every idea is of, is, is of equal value, but it means that we don't really evaluate our integrity or our spiritual direction just by our belief system. It means that we have to have a clear sense of the distinction between faith and belief. And faith essentially means what it means when we, when we say, for example, uh, 
we, you know, uh, in a, a faithful marriage or a faithful friendship or being faithful to a commitment that we've made. And we know what that means. It means that we stayed with it, that we stuck with it as best we could. And if we were unfaithful, then we admit it. And nobody's proud of being unfaithful. Uh, and we hope that the wounds of infidelity uh, can be healed and the relationship restored. We were talking about relationship this morning. So, uh, so faith is, we can understand really through this uh, human experience of relationship. Relationship begins to become interesting and serious when there's a commitment. And that commitment may be measured by time or by other, other criteria, uh, but where there is a real, in a sense, gift of oneself to the other without conditions, or, and that that gift of self continues uh, over time. Maybe there will be a period to that, a term to that, uh, to that relationship. Nothing is immortal. But as far as we can, we remain faithful to the commitments, the personal commitments uh, we have made. And if we fail, we admit it and we ask forgiveness of ourselves and others and we, and we heal. So that's faith. Faith is commitment and relationship and therefore it opens us to transcendence. Because what makes us become infaithful, un unfaithful? It, mean, it happens when we panic, when we get impatient, when we lose hope, when things become too tough for us. We have to be very compassionate about those mistakes. But at the same time, if we can overcome or transcend the temptations or the fears or the disappointments or the discouragement that everybody faces in the course of a long commitment, if we can overcome those tests, then we move into love. Because love is the, is the movement of self-transcendence. We, we transcend, as it were, we, we, we discover a more powerful source in ourselves, more powerful than the force of the ego, which says, we've all heard it, I didn't, I didn't, I, it wasn't, wasn't so I, I don't deserve this, uh, I don't want this, uh, this shouldn't be happening, I'm, I'm out. Uh, there's a, that's a very strong force that arises in the course of any, or the playing out of any commitment we make, any relationship we have. And if we can find a deeper source of energy to take us over those moments, then we transcend ourselves. To transcend the ego is to transcend ourselves. And then we um, become open to the power of love, which is that power that is released and we, we, we fly into when we transcend the ego. So that's faith. Or less. Belief is, um, 
is, 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 is an infrastructure of values that help us to live day by day, to face difficult decisions. We draw on our belief system when we have, when we have to endure something or make a, make a difficult decision. And these values are embedded in many different ways, not only in dogmas and creeds or beliefs in the, in the sense of ideas. Uh, and over the centuries, we know those theological ideas have changed. Not the essence of them, but the way they're expressed. They've, they've changed, they've been informed by new discoveries, like psychological discoveries about ourselves, about the human mind, and about other cultures. So the real meaning, though, of belief is that it, it is, is values embedded in a symbolic system. In other words, it's the symbols that speak to us most powerfully. And we'll look uh, on Thursday, when we look at the uh, Eucharist, we'll be a little bit out of sequence with the story, but it seems to make sense to um, uh, treat the, uh, the, the, the Lord's Supper uh, on Holy Thursday, because that's, that's the day where we celebrate it liturgically. So that, above all, is a symbol. It's a sacrament. A sacrament is a, a symbol an outward sign of an inward reality. It's important, it's sacred, it's valuable, it's precious. We're grateful, lucky to have it. But it's a sign, it's a symbol, a living symbol. So it's not just about what we conceptually believe or dogmatically believe. It's, a, it's even more about how we relate to the symbol, how, how, we, uh, how sensitive we are to it. So, um, so I wanted to uh, put, put our discussion this evening and, uh, into, that, into that context. And after the, uh, you know, before we meditate, just run through again some of the basic ideas or the basic teaching on how we meditate. Because all of the talking and all of the thinking can lead us astray or lead us into just into the labyrinth of ideas, uh, however helpful or enlightening those ideas may be for a time. There's always another idea. We forget ideas, you know, fairly quickly. Maybe we remember two or three, if we're lucky. Uh, there are very few original ideas in circulation at any one time. Um, so it's easy for us to get caught in the world of ideas in the head and to miss the heart. And the heart is the deeper center of experience of, of reality. So, we were looking this morning at the, the two moments in this part of the story of the passion narrative, uh, which speak to us about relationship. The first is the anointing of Jesus by the woman at Bethany. 
this act of reverence, this, this act of pure uh, love, really, uh, on which no monetary value can be put. And on the and the other example, of course, was Judas betraying Jesus, his teacher, his friend, for money. We don't know why. And we don't need to know why, really. What we need to see is the contrast between them. So these two opposites of relationship, the anointing and the betrayal, come together in the Last Supper. The meal opens with Jesus telling them that one of the people at the table will betray him. Maybe it's not a good way of starting an evening out. By, but again, uh, this shows us that the meaning of the meal that they are having is not just superficial. It's not just a, an evening out. It's not even just a religious ritual. And Jesus says, this must be. It must be, the betrayal must happen. And this, by, he expresses that by speaking about the fulfillment of the scriptures. So what, he's, what we're seeing here is, is a very profound insight on his part into the nature of the journey he's making. There is no other way. In a few moments in Gethsemane, he will struggle with that, that idea. There is no way out. You've just got to go through it. In the same way as eventually each of us will hopefully in good time, accept the reality of our own mortality, that we will die. There is no other way, uh, there's no way out of it eventually. So it's this acceptance <coughs> of, the, uh, of the trajectory that he's on, the logic of events, that I think we see here. He's not blaming Judas. I mean, he doesn't ad admire him either, but he's not, he's not playing the role of a victim. And this is what makes the, sto the story of uh, the passion so extraordinary, is that the central figure, who is an innocent victim, is not playing the role of a victim. He is a victim, certainly, a victim of injustice, a victim of betrayal. But he's not, as it were, accepting that role. He responds to the inevitability of it uh, in a way that lifts him up above the drama. And all of this takes place at the meal <coughs> and in community. At many places in this, in the last days of Jesus, we see him in the community with his companions, with his disciples, with his, the people he was closest to, people he could rely on, the people who hopefully understood him better than anyone. 
The human condition is inextricably linked to community. Community is the network of relationships at all levels, visible and invisible, even before and after our own time. Community extends beyond our own generation. That's what families are. That's what cultures are. That's what tradition is. So community, community is that intricate network of relationships in which we find ourselves, in which we come to see and understand ourselves. And community has a life of its own. We see this even in small examples, in any group, any committee, in any organization, uh, in any family or monastery. It seems to have a life of its own. And to replace its own life just by the, with the will of one figure, like a dominating patriarchal figure, for example, or a bully, or a dictator, uh, destroys community. So we have to respect the fact that when we are in relationship and in community, that community has some kind of autonomy or some kind of life of its own. We can't act high-handedly and, um, and leadership has to respect very carefully. It has to lead and give direction, but at the same time not stifle that life within the community. And this communal life is what we see in the Eucharist at the Last Supper. A community, meaning all forms of relationship with each other, whether it's marriage or monastery, work or play, we, we live in different kinds of community. Uh, no community is easy. It includes the experience of anointing, of being recognized and held in reverence by others. But it also includes the experience of rejection and betrayal. So the woman doing the anointing at Bethany on the one hand and Judas on the other. They're both in the same community. And Jesus is clearly you know, the, 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 the focal point uh, of that particular web of community. John Main said that meditation creates community. We tend to think of prayer, he said, as an individual activity and our involvement in community as something else. So this, this is him speaking about the relationship between deep prayer, meditation as deep prayer, not just praying for good weather, deep prayer and community. And we often see them as two different things. But in the New Testament, he says, there is one central unifying reality that is the reality of love. The love of God, the love of neighbor, and the love of oneself. Jesus 
is God's love made visible, he says, in the world. His vision is a vision of a community of brothers and sisters who respond together to this one central unifying reality that is beyond them and yet contains them and is constantly expanding them. So we're not just talking about a community of, you know, golfing buddies or a community of a network of relationships in politics, but we're talking about a group of people, a network of relationships that is part of a universal network of relationships, uh, which is collectively focused on, turned towards this single central reality of love. And I quoted uh, from the letter to the Colossians this morning, how the early Christians, St. Paul in this case, understood this happening in, in their daily life, organization and relationships. So they're perfectly aware, as Jesus clearly was, having been betrayed, that community is not perfect. It's not romantic any more than a marriage, you know, stays at the level of the first date or, or the first, I don't know, six months of dating. It evolves. And community is not perfect in the sense that it doesn't answer all our immediate needs, doesn't gratify everything we need. To think that it does would be to be very disappointed. Just as marriages can break down because of lack of communication or very often because each or one maybe of the partners is uh, expecting something or demanding something that the other cannot give or very often demanding that the other person changes. And in my experience, people don't change much. They all, the, the, the only a place of change is ourself. And if we change, the relationships we have change. And that might make us think that the person we're in relationship to changes. I uh, was uh, talking with a group of, of uh, women who work together in a big institution and they started a meditation group. And they um, med meditate very early in the morning before the first uh, shift. And they were joined on the first morning of the group by a woman, not one of their little group, but who was the most unpopular woman in the institution. And uh, so when they saw her come in, they thought, oh, God, she's here. And this, this poor woman who was was just unpopular, it was the way she did her work and the way she rubbed people up the wrong way and abrasive and, you know, uh, harsh personality. 
Anyway, no, nobody liked this poor woman. And, um, but they could hardly say, we don't want to meditate with you. So they meditated with her. And they did so for, I don't know how long it was, maybe two or three weeks. Every morning, they didn't have time to, to talk and have long conversations. They just came, meditated, and left. And this woman came every, every day. And after about three weeks, one of the first group of women said to another, don't you think she, meaning this other unpopular woman, don't you think she's getting a bit nicer? <coughs> she's changing a bit. And the other one had the presence of mind to say, yes, I had noticed it, but I wondered also whether it was us who were changing as well. There is a very powerful uh, influence on any network of human relationships that is felt when we meditate together, when they meditate together. And even if a group of meditators is going through a crisis or conflict, as happens sometimes, uh, having a conflict is not a bad thing, it's inevitable. It's how you deal with the conflict. And a group of meditators, we would hope, would deal with the conflict in a particular way, in a contemplative way, with self-control, with, listen, with listening, uh, with patience, and with love, basically. And love boils down to keeping our attention on the other person, not withdrawing ourselves from them, not pulling out of the relationship, but keeping the relationship energized by the attention we give, even if it's to somebody we really find impossible. So, uh, communities will go through conflicts. Anyone who meditates with a group that is going through a conflict will, I think, realize that these times of meditation together are very special. They're times of communion, like the Eucharist. Some years ago, and I think the Anglicans were having uh, their Lambeth conference, a group of, um, they, were, they were totally divided over certain issues, you know, homosexuality was the big issue of the, time, of the day. And there were very, very bitter feelings and condemnation of, each, of, other, of the other side. And when it came to having, having their common Eucharist, I, I heard that some of them said, we will not have, we will not celebrate the Eucharist with that lot. And this was where the person in charge, I won't tell you who it is, but the person in charge stepped in and said, you are gonna have, <laughs> you are gonna have celebrate this Eucharist together. And if you don't, we can all go home. And we will all go home to our different places because we will have broken the fundamental, you know, expression of faith. Anyway, they did. And um, so th the experience of meditating together, very similar to that, uh, 
it opens us to an experience of the common ground that exists between us, even between us and our enemies, the people we find impossible to get on with. So that's, I think, what uh, St. Paul was saying this morning in the letter to the Galatians, where he's talking about um, controlling the way we express ourselves, the way we handle conflict. How do we so easily forget this vision? And how do religious people, or people who are wise, in other areas of their life so easily forget it and reduce community just to politics, to ego battles in which we are convinced of our own righteousness and condemn others so quickly and nastily. There's a great disillusionment today with churches and with politicians, both of which are concerned with building community. And often there can be disillusionment with community when we see that our idyllic, idealistic, unrealistic attitude or expectations um, are not going to be realized. And we see that there is this mixture of light and shade in community as in life, the, this mixture of anointing and betrayal. That's why we need to continually reinvent the structures of church, politics, community, all of the social structures that support our community experience. Because as external circumstances change, these forms often become unfit for purpose. They just don't work anymore. It isn't necessarily they have to be abolished. Sometimes they just die out because people won't adapt. I mean, it's like parishes. Parishes, if you, meet, if you find a good parish, it's, it's a wonderful experience of community. It nourishes people locally, the young families, look after the old people. It's a place of spiritual support, a place of social and you know, even economic support for people. So a good parish is, is a marvelous invention. We, can't, we shouldn't just throw it away. On the other hand, most parishes seem to have lost their sense, their vision of how to be community. So we need to reinvent the structures, reform them. But then as soon as we begin reform, then comes the battle for change against those who don't want to change under any circumstances and those who do want to change. This uh, year actually at uh, our John Main seminar, is focusing on this question of change, of rethinking, of revisioning uh, some of the major models and paradigms of, of, our, of society in the fields of um, education, medicine, 
business, finance, scientific research, and so on, and social, social, social work. And we have some amazing uh, speakers who bring a contemplative perspective to bear upon these, these questions of our time. And it will be in uh, the seminars in September in Bruges, a very contemplative, beautiful city in Belgium. Um, and uh, another example of this in, our, in the life of our community is uh, Bonveau, of course. And a little later, we'll, later in the week, we'll say a bit more about Bonveau, our new center. Um, it's a form, a new form of our community that has been taking shape for more than 30 years and is now coming to birth. And we are excited by the challenge, by the vision, by the opportunity we have to, to build a community, a local community, which is connected to and, and, and serves the global community. Not only of our own Christian meditators, but beyond to be able to, to be a place of peace and a place where peace can be shared and this vision of human community can be uh, communicated uh, through dialogue, through inter-religious dialogue, through dialogue with the secular world. So I think any community, as John Main was saying, does not exist for itself. Even a family doesn't exist for itself. It has to nurture itself. It needs time and attention to itself, to its members. But it doesn't exist for itself. It, it always has to have this extended vision that it is part of a, a greater network of community. And that, again, is what the Eucharist is. This is what we see, I think, in this part of the Passion narrative. The reality of community is containing the woman at Bethany and Judas. And the fidelity, faithfulness of the, at the heart of this community, which is the, the fidelity of Jesus to his own destiny and to his own immediate community. He doesn't walk out, doesn't run away. He doesn't condemn. So, learning to resist the tendency in us to control others is something we have to be constantly aware of. Instead of simply seeing, uh, seeing the other for who they are, contemplating their wondrous being like Miranda uh, in The Tempest I mentioned yesterday. Even if we see them for a moment as a Judas. Even the dark figures in our lives, we have to contemplate with, with this generous attention, paying attention to them as they are. Doesn't mean we, if they are acting Badly, we don't condone what they're doing, but we don't condemn. 
The human tendency is always there to see ourselves as God. And we'll look a little later at power, how power corrupts. Um, even in, even or maybe even especially in religious circles where religious leaders see themselves as the spokesperson for God. There's this human tendency coming out of our ego to see ourselves as God because we cannot contemplate God as the other. God just becomes an object of our belief rather than a relationship of faith. In meditation, we're not thinking about God. We're not speaking to God. So in a sense, we're, we're not relating to God uh, in, the way we, in the ways we normally relate. In meditation, we lay aside the images and the ideas of God, along with all other images and ideas, as they arise, so that we can instead be in faith with God. Or just to put it more simply, we're not thinking about God, we are being with God. Community, like marriage, is often seen, as I said, in a kind of idealistic way. We think it will be a permanent place of recognition, of security, and anointing. We will always be receiving this wonderful gift of attention from others. And it is. It must be also a source of delight and an empowerment. Community should be, you know, the, the, the balance sheet should be <clears throat> that we, we get more joy than suffering uh, from community. But it needs to be also to be seen as a school, not as an escape. And not many children would choose to go to school if they could do something else. They don't love learning so much that they will give up other treats and favorite activities. Schools are places of formation, of education, and we learn many more things at school than just facts and figures. We learn how to relate. St. Benedict calls community the school of the Lord's service. We learn how to serve. That's what community is truly about. And we learn this through self-knowledge. The early Christian monks said that self-knowledge is more important than the ability to work miracles. It's self-knowledge that brings us directly into the knowledge of God. So, um, as I said at the beginning, all of this 
may be useful to have, may be useful through reflection, through thinking, <coughs> through dialogue, through discussion. To think about these things so that we can correct false ideas that have become embedded in us maybe from our childhood. False ideas <coughs> about what religion is or what community is or what God is for that matter. So very often this, this kind of work, uh, this kind of reflection is most useful in the way that it corrects the dysfunctions of our understandings about, about God. But more important than that, and also a very powerful way of correcting those false ideas that we don't even know we have sometimes, uh, is the practice of meditation itself. Some people, when they begin to meditate, they get a little nervous if they're religious people and they pray in other ways. And they will say, you know, I'm, I, I really wonder whether this is really good because I, I, I feel maybe not that I'm losing faith in God or, but I, or separating from God, but it's, it's all changing. And I think it does change. When we enter into the contemplative dimension of prayer, our image of God is going to change as well. As we grow in self-knowledge, the quality of our self-knowledge is going to change our knowledge of God and the way we understand and see God. Meister Eckhart, great mystic of the 14th century said, I pray to God to rid me of God. And that sounds shocking, but it's very sound theology, in fact. It's a, it's a contemplative theology. And this is really what we do when we meditate. So let me um, just say a few words again about why and how we do this. Meditation is a, a universal wisdom. We find it in all of the great wisdom traditions of humanity. And it's basically the insight that to find the truth, the center of reality, we have to make a, a journey, a pil inner pilgrimage from the mind to the heart. So this, the heart here is a symbol of wholeness, a symbol of integration, not a symbol just of feeling or emotion. It's not that feeling and emotions are not important, but the heart is not a symbol so much of that as a symbol of integrated experience and integrated uh, intelligence or integrated understanding. So in, in the Christian tradition, we find the teaching on this journey on this understanding of prayer in the words of Jesus himself, especially at the Sermon on the Mount, when he tells us that we should, when we pray, go into the inner room and close the door and pray in that secret place. 
or when he tells us when we meditate, when we pray, we should not babble on like the pagans who think the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. Because God knows what you need before you ask. Very simple logic there. No one can argue with that. So a teaching, first of all, of interiority, the inner room, and secondly, a teaching on silence, on the, the, the work of silence, the journey into silence. And then he tells us, when you pray, uh, do not worry. Let go of your anxieties about what you are to wear or what you are to eat. Uh, there are, there are, it's not that these are not important, but at the time of prayer, this is not what you should be focusing on. Our, our daily anxieties and problems and worries. Again, that sounds easier said than done, but it is the work of prayer to lay aside our anxieties and worries at the time of prayer. Meditation, which allows us to do this work, it doesn't solve your problems, but it will allow you to come back to your problems after the meditation and uh, deal with them in a very different way, with a much deeper peace and wisdom and detachment. Then he tells us also, when you pray, set your mind on God's kingdom before everything else and all the rest will come to you in due course. So attention, setting your mind on one thing. That's again what meditation is. It's being single-minded. The first thing we discover when we meditate, as we learn, is that we are very un-single-minded. Our mind is jumping around like a, like a, like a well, let's say a helicopter. What's the, what are those... Um, Little insects. Anyway, like a grasshopper, yeah. So jumping from one thing uh, to the next. And so we have to train the mind in a very simple but faithful way to learn to pay attention, to be single focused. And then he tells us live in the present moment. Don't worry about tomorrow, it may not happen, and uh, every day has enough problems anyway. So don't, get, don't worry about tomorrow, be in the present moment. And if we take all of those elements of Jesus' teaching on prayer and we add them all up, the uh, answer is contemplation. This is what he's a teacher of. He's a teacher of contemplation. Now, he prayed in other ways. Uh, he went to the synagogue, he went to the temple. But his teaching on prayer is not about external forms of prayer. It's about the con contemplation. And then in the early uh, Christian period, we, we find the, the early Christian teachers uh, beginning to teach how we can put this into practice. And the real masters of this were the early monks who were lay people, not priests, 
the early, the early monastic movement, which longed and desired deeply to achieve this level of prayer that Jesus was teaching and to remain in it continuously. Their goal was continuous prayer so that whatever we're doing, wherever we are, good days or bad days, we are grounded and centered in this experience. And that's, it's from that very early monastic period that we find or John Main found, recognized, and then taught to modern people this way of meditation. So we're part of a community that gives us, that hands on to us, this uh, teaching, this wisdom of meditation. When we begin to practice it, we begin to form a community with other people who are practicing it and become aware of the bigger community that we are part of. And we then, in our turn, pass it on in different ways. Bonveau is one of these ways. We pass it on to the next generation. So meditation, as John Main says, creates community but in another sense, it, is, it, it really is an experience of community uh, from the very inception, from our first contact with it. And it is so because it is an experience of communion. And communion is a deeper experience than what we normally think of as relationship. In relationship, there's me here and you there, and we have some things in common, and we do things together. But communion is where we commune, where we enter into union. And that's what we can do now when we meditate. Um, maybe again, we'll listen to a little Taizé music, and let's just take a couple of minutes uh, to stretch and uh, relax until we meditate together. 